The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. Ready to get into God's Word? Everybody? All right. I got something in my Bible here, though. That was fun last week. And uh, praise the Lord for that. And praise the Lord we could be back uh, together again today. And thanks for coming out. And uh, let's start with this. Um, it's a quote from Paul Tillich. He's a was a famous theologian. Um, Doubt is not the opposite of faith. It's one element of faith. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. It is one element of faith. I think it's um, probably a safe assumption as we get started here today and just thinking about this, thinking about doubt and faith. uh, I think it's safe to say that many people doubt who Jesus is. Fair? Many people doubt who Jesus is. Uh, Muslims, uh, for example, believe him to be a prophet, uh, but a failed one, a failed one, and certainly inferior to Muhammad. Uh, liberal uh, critics of Jesus, uh, some who would even be religious in nature and call themselves Christians, uh, would often see Jesus as an important historical figure, but not the Son of God. If you track um, so many different mini-series or little expose that are on television or in, or in the media about Jesus, often we'll see him in that way. A historical figure, yes, Jesus existed, but he wasn't the son of God. PBS was one that ran one recently called From Jesus to Christ, saying that there was a Jesus, but that the church fabricated uh, the rest of it and made him the Christ, that he, it was never his intention. Uh, they doubt who Jesus is. Uh, We could even say that those, and maybe there are people here today who are like that, people who are just exploring faith, and this isn't your thing yet, and uh, you don't fully embrace Jesus, you don't believe in him the way that we might, the way that we've been singing to him. Maybe uh, you were just processing all the songs we just sang, but you weren't really singing them. Uh, But you're happy to come and to explore, and you're checking out faith, but you still, we would just say this, you still have some, some doubts about him. And that's good, I'm glad you're here, I'm glad you're exploring those things. Uh, Even people of great faith, and maybe this is comforting to you, even people of great faith at times, when walking through the valley of the shadow of death, for example, uh, might doubt God, doubt who he is, doubt uh, the promises, uh, doubt what he said about himself. That's okay too. But all of that said, uh, what Jesus really wants for us is this. To be absolutely certain about who he is. Uh, If doubts are part, if they're one element of faith, what God really wants for us is to use that as a, maybe a starting point for faith. uh, To move uh, kind of beyond that. Jesus wants you and I to be certain about him. And we need to stop thinking about doubt doubt as being something that's faith crushing. And instead see it as something that is faith fueling that's what we're going to see in today's text we're going to be in luke chapter 7 verses 18 through 35 
And in this text, Jesus has a conversation with the disciples of John the Baptist. And the conversation is about the nature of who Jesus is because John was having some, he was having some doubts. And Jesus' answer is one that's meant to erase doubt, not just for John, but for John and his disciples and for every follower who would come after them, including you and me, and to create certainty about who he is. And Jesus wants that. God wants that for us here today, that we would have that kind of certainty, despite the doubts of others, and even your own doubts that you may be carrying today, you can be certain that Jesus Christ is the one and only Savior of the world. That's what we're going to go after today, but it'd be a great idea to start with prayer, don't you think? So let's, uh, let's bow our heads and pray together. Uh, God, uh, so grateful uh, for the time that we've already had uh, in worship and um, for being able to be together as the church. Uh, Father, we're coming to you right now in Jesus' name and asking Uh, that you would show us from your word uh, what we don't yet know about you. God, that you would teach us today. And having taught us to change us, to be more like our Savior, Jesus Christ, give us confidence, give us certainty about who he is. Uh, Wherever people are in their faith journey this morning as we gather, I pray, God, you would take us a little further and increase our faith. We would pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, You can be certain that Jesus Christ is the one and only Savior of the world. Uh, You can be certain because, start with this, uh, you see God doing uh, what only God can do. We're reading the passage as we go here today, so let me read uh, the first few verses. This is Luke 7, uh, beginning at verse 18. Uh, The disciples of John reported all these things to him. Presumably they were around uh, watching Jesus do some things, would go back to John And report to him. And John, uh, verse 19, calling two of his disciples to him, uh, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, we know from chapter 3 that uh, John is already in prison. That's why he has to send these emissaries uh, to Jesus to ask this question. And uh, we want to get behind the reason for the question. If you go back to uh, John's ministry when he was by the Jordan baptizing people and preaching, when Jesus came to him, I mean, John declared with such incredible certainty that this was indeed the Lamb of God. John said that, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And and now he's sending emissaries to ask Jesus if he's the one. Are you the Messiah? And so you have to kind of, you have to step back from the question a little bit and say, why exactly is he asking the question? And if there's any reason for it, it's going to come down to this one word, expectations. Jesus wasn't turning out to be what John expected him to be. Now, let me ask you, without going any further in the text, without unpacking anything else that's here, let me just ask you a question. Just honestly, you can just answer. You don't need to raise your hand or say it out loud or anything. How often 
Do you have expectations of how God ought to work in your life? And when he doesn't work that way, you end up disappointed. It was a wonderful response. Thank you uh, for that. I think we all understand uh, that we can get very disillusioned when God acts differently than the way we expect him to act. And that's what John is facing. And so we give John a pass insofar as we want to give ourselves a pass on that. We can identify closely with the question. I mean, John, had, John, I mean, John was out living this austere lifestyle. He gets called by God to kind of separate himself from everyone else so that he doesn't have this kind of normal kind of life. He goes out and lives this austere lifestyle in the desert. He sets up this preaching ministry. People are coming to him. He's not enjoying all the benefits of living in his family or living in his village. And then he's preaching this super hard message to people. The judgment of God is coming. The kingdom of God is coming. If you're not ready for it, it's going to be bad for you. And a lot of people responding to that. And then then Jesus comes along. And and it's a little bit less fiery judgment of God in Jesus' preaching. There's a hard edge to it. But it's not like... Uh, the judgment is imminent. The kingdom of God is, it's just not like John's preaching. Uh, John's preaching's a lot more kind of red in the face. If he had a pulpit, he'd be pounding it. He'd be spitting on people like I do in the front row. That's why some chairs are empty here. <laughs> and Jesus is more like he's, he's, you know, he's gathering people in. He's, he's reasoning with people a little bit more. And, and John's going, that's not exactly what I was expecting. Jesus. And so he asked Jesus, are you the one? Are you, are you the Messiah? Now, please appreciate this. I, I love that he asks. I I appreciate the humility that's in the question. I mean, I don't see it as negative doubt. Like, like Jesus, what's with, it's not that kind of doubt. It's like, I really want to know. And I'm feeling like I'm not getting it right now. There's, there's even faith in the question. Because he still has enough faith to ask it, to inquire, to, to wonder if he's seeing it wrong. In fact, I really see the, the question like this. Jesus, things aren't playing out the way I was expecting. Well, that's fine. Just let me know that I'm seeing it right, that you're the one. And if you need to correct my 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 view of this, correct it. I mean, that's what I really hear in John's question. If if he had been completely disappointed by Jesus, he would have checked out entirely. Instead, he inquires, listen, because of his doubts. And that leads to increased faith. Write this down. I think this is a helpful phrase. I doubt, therefore I seek. I doubt, therefore I seek. Well, Jesus answers him in the next two verses, verses 21 and 22. Um, here's what happens there. In that hour, he healed many people. So, so while the disciples are there, the disciples of John, they've asked their question. And then it seems like Jesus doesn't answer them right away. He then goes on to heal a bunch of people. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed, bestowed sight. And he answered them. Doing all of this, he answers them, the disciples of John, go tell John what you have seen and heard. 
The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. That's the passage we look at, looked at just last week, the widow's son in name. The poor have the good news preached to them, not necessarily the economically poor, but the spiritually poor, the destitute. People were so desperate to hear a message. I mean, this is what's happening. This is what you need to see. This is the answer to the question. He articulates all that's been going on and did more of it right within their witness of it. Could, could we look at the list without going through the specifics of it and just say some crazy, miraculous things were going on? Some things way beyond the norm. All of it, a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. If you'd like to track these things down during the week, write down this reference, Isaiah 61.1, because essentially all of this is a fulfillment of that one verse, Isaiah 61.1. Now, the reality is if you see these things happening, you see them happening, they are happening, the Old Testament spoke about these things happening, then all of that is going to be a sign of the, of the Messiah's coming. You have to do the math. You have to look at everything that's happened so far, add it all up and go, this couldn't be anyone other than uh, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And that's what John had to conclude. That's what you and I must conclude. He says, say, uh, that's good for then, but how about now? And I see God doing all kinds of things now. And the question I would have for everybody in this room is, what do you see God doing? Where is God working? Are you seeing that happening? Whatever doubts you might have about Jesus, what does the evidence tell you about him? Now, I've been thinking along various lines of how God is working in this world. Let me share a little bit of this uh, with you. And I'm thinking now in terms of uh, the impact, let's think of the last 2,000 years. That's a little far back than most of us can remember. But... uh, but if you're thinking back to the impact of the gospel, remember the, the followers of Christ were, were 120 people at the resurrection. And it, it, so you have, you have um, a very small group of people that end, ended up influencing the entire world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But, but think about some of these things that this is all attested to. Um, evangelical and Catholics, all of those who would name the name of Jesus Christ, are the single largest health care provider in the world by far. Most hospitals, clinics around the world uh, were founded by those who professed faith in Jesus Christ. Most, listen, most the single largest, evangelicals and Catholics, the single largest education provider in the world by far. The influence of the gospel, the influence of those in the world. We're tracking the evidence. We're looking for how God has been shaping this world through Christ. We often think of, because today, the irony of human rights tribunals and how that whole thing plays out is it very often... um, Uh, doesn't favor those of us who are evangelical believers any longer, no matter if that's in Europe or in the United States or Canada. Human rights codes generally work against some of the things that we believe. But you know that everything with regard to human rights, human rights movements, are actually coming out of a Judeo-Christian ethic, out of uh, the lives of those who are Christians who lobbied for 
the rights of the individual, who protected those who were on the margins of society. The greatest example, perhaps, in North America is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The civil rights movement that happened in the States. Democracy itself is founded out of Christian principles. The Magna Carta, Magna Carta, perhaps the most important legal document of the last 2,000 years, founded on a Judeo-Christian ethic. The abolition of slavery in the Western world was the result of Christians like Wilberforce and Newton who led the charge but who loved Jesus Christ before all things. Most orphanages around the world, in fact, the whole concept of having an orphan home started because a people who didn't want their children would just drop them off at the church door. And the priests and the pastors were required to just take care of them. And they did, in Jesus' name. And a movement of orphanages and to care for those who were abandoned by parents was started. Prison reform around the world happens because those who love Jesus Christ desire it and make moves for it. Relief agencies, we often don't think about it, but relief agencies like the Red Cross were founded by those who love Jesus Christ. The YMCA, which does so much around the world, was founded by those who wanted to teach young men to study the Bible and to live a holistic life. Child sponsorship programs around the world were all founded by those who loved Jesus Christ. Literacy rises in places where people read the Bible. The influence of the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. Listen, you see God doing what only God can do. And it's all the influence of the gospel. You say, well, that's all well and good, Todd. I uh, maybe can see all of that, but, but make that a little more personal for me. I mean, how else do we see God working, maybe in a more personal, more right down to earth, right here kind of way? Well, without going through every story, and we've had some pretty amazing storyline videos that we've shown here where we see God at work in people's lives. You know the stories yourself, and you're in small groups with people who have incredible stories of God's grace. But let me bullet form those whose lives were ruined and found life in Jesus Christ. See, there are people in this room who were hopelessly addicted to alcohol, to drugs, I can catch faces. One of the beautiful things about preaching is um, you're all looking at me, just one guy up here, but I'm looking at all of you and all of these faces. And I see things when I preach and I know stories when I preach and they come to mind. And I know there are certain things in the scripture that hit the mark for certain people. So I can see all this. People who were hopelessly addicted, but who found freedom from their addictions in Jesus Christ and the blessing and bounty of God that's come into their life. People who were gripped by unforgiveness and bitterness. Who found relief in Christ and the joy of Christ and the spirit of God in their life now. Because they released those things, those offenses that happened to them. There are people in this room whose marriages, to, to say they were teetering on the edge would be such a, an underestimation of where they were at. Marriages that were ruined, that God brought back together through uh, the pain of adultery and the pain of betrayal. Those marriages today where 
Husbands and wives have looked at each other in the eye and restated their vows to each other and are living now for Christ. And and the evidence of the light of Christ in that home and the blessing that is to all of their children and grandchildren. Because they found Christ. So many lives turned around, those crushed under the weight of grief. But who found hope and solace in Christ rather than despair or bitterness at his choice for them. So many in the room who have struggled with life purpose, I don't know why I'm here, and now they know. I don't know who I am, but now I know. People who didn't know that they were loved and who have said to me time and again, the three most comforting words they hear at the end of every service, are you are loved. Because they found it in Christ and in his church. We have seen and we have heard God doing what only God can do. And it dispels the doubt from us and increases our faith. But Jesus finishes this section in verse 23. He says this, it's a, it's, a, it's a beatitude of sorts because it has, you know, blessed are, it's like a beatitude. But it's kind of reversed because blessed are you when you don't do this or you're not this. He, he says, a blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You read that and you just go, like he's talking to the disciples of John. John came with a question and then Jesus says to them after he says, look, take a look at what, you, what you're seeing around you. That's the answer to the question. Then he said, and and blessed, by the way, blessed is the person not offended by me. And you could kind of take it kind of harshly and just say, man, Jesus, you're being a little hard on John right now. Did you read it that way? Being a little hard on him, but I, I understand that Jesus needs to say this. I'm not sure he's saying it precisely to John or to his disciples or, or to all of us and to everybody who is standing around. It's a warning to anyone who will resist what they see and reject Jesus Christ. Don't be offended by him. The word offense here, uh, the original Greek word is uh, scandalon, from which we get the English word scandal. And a scandal is something that, that trips someone up. They, they stumble. When you're scandalized, you, you stumble over something, uh, usually something that you've done yourself. So the word offense means to stumble over. I love what Robert Stein says, just to kind of bring this in. He's a commentator on this text. Those who are not scandalized by preconceived ideas of the messianic task, that's expectations, but instead judged by what they see happening, will know that Jesus is indeed the promised one and will, as a result, be blessed. That's what we want, isn't it? We want to be blessed. Not offended by him, not stumbling over the truth of who he is, but looking and seeing everything that's happening and saying, this has to be the Savior. He has to be the one sent by God. But if you miss it, if you let your own preconceived ideas, your expectations sway you, you'll miss salvation. You'll miss the blessing. You'll miss Jesus He's the one and only Savior of the world. Amen? He is. 
Well, you can be certain as well. That's really just the first step in this. Uh, you can be certain as well because uh, secondly, you hear God saying what only God can say. God doing what only God can do. Now God saying what only God can say. So John's disciples, they, they leave and Jesus now addresses the crowd about him. Uh, verse uh, 24, pick it up there. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Um, and he said to them, uh, what do you go out? What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. So he asked them, did you go out to see a reed shaken in the wind? We're not exactly sure. This could be a couple of different things. It's kind of something very commonplace. You go out into the wilderness, you go out into the fields, and there's all kinds of, you know, branches, weeds, things, all just blown in the wind. This is a very commonplace. Did you go out to see something that was ordinary and commonplace? Or, or maybe it refers to something that's just kind of blown about and isn't, isn't firm in its convictions and, and, and just blown and swayed by every uh, kind of thought and opinion. Jesus is saying, if that's what you were going out to see, well, he was neither ordinary nor swayed by anything, nor not blown about by the wind. That wasn't John for sure. That's a great thing to say about John, by the way, because so many preachers today are blown about by the wind and are pretty commonplace. Not much worth seeing. Don't stand for anything. Don't say anything of value. In essence, not preaching what Paul called the whole counsel of God, Acts 20, 27. Certainly not having what Jeremiah had. Jeremiah said he had a burning fire shut up in his bones and that he was weary of holding it in. I mean, that was John, like Jeremiah, preaching the whole counsel of God and, and, and not, not being able to contain it, having a, an urgency to proclaim the truth of God's word. No ordinary preacher for sure. That's what Jesus is saying about him. His calling was directly and prophetically tied to the redemptive plan of God. He was the anointed forerunner of the Messiah. And what Jesus says about him in 25, 26, and 27 affirm the esteemed role that John played. This is he, verse 27, of whom it is written. This is from Malachi 3, 1. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. A prophet. More than a prophet. Jesus would go on to say in verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, notice none is greater than John. Again, because of the special role that he played, preparing the way. The last, really, if you're on my Facebook page yesterday, you know this, the last, John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. Malachi was the last of the writing Old Testament prophets. Malachi said there would be another one who would come, but Jesus inaugurated the new covenant, uh, but John wasn't around for that. He would be martyred before that would happen. He's the last one to preach about the coming Messiah. He had the privilege of actually seeing him and knowing him. 
John was someone worth going out to see and hear. That's what Jesus is saying about him. And yet he says this in verse 28. Now this is more about us. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. The the, the least follower of Christ in this room is greater than John in the sense that we get the blessing and benefit of being in the, in the kingdom of God, a part of his visible earthly kingdom. Here on earth, something John, John never got to see. All of this is just Jesus esteeming and affirming uh, who John was and his call to do what he was doing. Now listen, this is so important. It still wasn't about John. It isn't at all about John. We can't get too caught up in who John is. Because the whole thing is always only about the message. It's always only about the Messiah to whom the message points. Uh, The message is everything. Uh, The messenger is nothing. John was great because of the message he proclaimed, because of the Messiah that he pointed to. And Luke adds this parenthesis then. We think about John and his preaching. And then Luke says, verse 29, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John... But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purposes, the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. John's preaching this amazing message. He's God's anointed servant. He's this prophet who's preparing the way for Messiah. He's got all of that going for him. Jesus vindicates all of that. And then Luke adds this comment. uh, Some listened to the message, fell in behind the purposes of God. And many religious leaders mostly Uh, They did not. They rejected, notice, they rejected the purpose of God. And what was great about John's message, what resonated with the people he reached, I think just write down these three words, what what was great about John's preaching was that it was uh, simple, it was clear, and it was urgent. By the way, the same three things we go for in every message here. It was simple, it was clear, and it was urgent. I mean, John's message was, uh, we're not in a good place, people. Uh, we're sinners, and the sin has separated us from God. Uh, God is sending his uh, anointed one, his, his son, to save us, to be reconciled to him. You need to repent. You need to agree with God about some things in your life and you need to make a different decision and turn your life toward him and John's message. Be baptized as a testimony to that. That was the simple, clear and urgent message that he preached. And the people that responded were those that were unfit. Well, at least that the religious leaders thought were unfit. The people who weren't welcomed in the temple, they, they weren't welcomed in the synagogue and the life of the community. They were despised and put down. They accepted this message because in it they found hope. Many others rejected the message outright. I mean, to hear God saying what only God can say, that you're not in a great place, 
And you need to be reconciled. And I made a way for you to do that. That's the thing that only God can say. And he says that through this book. The message is everything. The messenger is nothing. He says it to us in this book. The word of God, the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. Do you trust what God's word says? Because if you have any doubts, they're probably going to rest in what you know and believe about this book. And yet this is a book that I know you can have great confidence in. In fact, there's another great little book about this book. Pastor James McDonald wrote this one. God wrote a book. And he shares some really interesting things in here. In fact, I would commend this to you. And you want to get a copy of this, stop by the bookstore on your way out today. Get your name on a list. We'll order that in for you. Because this is just, it's a short read, but it's going to help you with your confidence about the word of God. Let me share some things that are in this book. Some of these things I've updated. It is the bestseller of all time by far, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. Uh, pretty difficult to estimate, but the Bible Society would say that at least 5 billion copies of the Bible have been published. Impossible, really, to say. Um, the uh, next closest, uh, if the Bible has 5 billion copies out there, uh, the next closest is Mao Zedong's um, uh, quotes from the works of Mao Zedong, um, less than a billion copies. Um, and that was mandatory. They made the Chinese people buy that one. Not sure they wanted to. As of November 2014, now listen to this. Um, the Bible has been translated into uh, 531 languages. That's the whole Bible. And uh, partially in another 28, almost 2,900 languages, portions of the scripture exist, according to w- Wycliffe Bible translators. It is the most quoted and most influential book on all world literature. And um, I'm telling you, you, you couldn't study, for example, you couldn't study Shakespeare without a Bible in your hand. You can't really understand it. And some people are going, that's fine. I don't really want to understand Shakespeare. (laughs) Uh, But the point being that English literature profoundly, French literature profoundly, Russian literature profoundly impacted by this book. You can't read it and not see that. Uh, There are, of this book, some people uh, would talk about uh, the evidence for the word of God. And uh, is it translated accurately? And can we trust it? And... um, I would just say this, uh, Homer's Iliad, um, which is uh, one of the most attested to works of ancient literature, Homer's Iliad, has uh, 643 um, kind of uh, older manuscripts of Homer's Iliad. None of them, by the way, have the whole play. None of them. Um, All of them are partial. All of them are quite a bit... um, more recent than ancient, uh, hundreds of years span the time that Homer would have written and the, uh, uh, the earliest manuscripts that would be have. 643 partial manuscripts of the Iliad, um, more than 5,300, 5,300 uh, New Testament manuscripts. Uh, far and away more attested to, and far earlier. In fact, the earliest Greek manuscript of the New Testament was written just some 25 years after John finished writing the book of Revelation. Very, very early, and you understand the earlier the manuscript, 
uh, the more reliable it is because then you don't have copyist errors and, uh, that can happen sometimes in manuscripts. Uh, no significant doctrines are hanging on any uh, differences in any manuscripts along the way. They are extremely consistent with one another. All of that pertains to the New Testament. The Dead Sea Scrolls have confirmed uh, the uh, accuracy, the legitimacy of the Old Testament canon, the Hebrew scriptures. That was a, an incredible find. We move to the area of archaeology, continues to find evidence for the accounts and for the people we read in the Bible. The Biblical Archaeological Society documents many of these. 1961, up until that time, no one knew if Pontius Pilate really existed. He was only ever mentioned in the New Testament. In 1961, they found a stone tablet that, um, that recounted that Pilate was indeed the procurator in Palestine, Judea at that time. There are all kinds of tablets that are pointing to uh, things about the global deluge, the flood. Interesting theories and notations about a circular arc rather than the one that we often depict. So many different things are being discovered in archaeology that are confirming. We, we haven't confirmed everything, but archaeology is confirming many and more of these things all the time. And never are we finding anything that really contradicts the scriptures. The book itself, the Bible... 40 different authors writing over a period of 1,500 years. They came from various backgrounds and education. At least one, Luke, was a Gentile, a non-Jew. The thing about the scriptures uh, from Old Testament to New, from Genesis to Revelation, is the amazing consistency from book to book to book, despite the fact it was written over such a long period of time by so many different people. And one final thing concerning prophecy 61 major prophetic words from the Old Testament were fulfilled in Jesus Christ alone. 61. And increasingly lately, I've been watching what's happening in our own culture, in our own day and age, and thinking about the apocalyptic literature that is yet to be fulfilled, the prophecies that are yet to come true. And even in that, I'm seeing the evidence of God at work. God saying, what only God could say. See, it's this book that proclaims the life-giving message of Jesus Christ. It's this book that tells us about the incarnation of Christ, that he became flesh and dwelt among us. It's this book that tells us we need to be reconciled to God. It's this book that tells us that Jesus Christ gave his life as a sacrifice for us. It's this book that tells us that he was raised to new life on the third day. And that the resurrection awaits all who surrender their life to him and walk with him. I doubt. Therefore, I study. Doubt drives me not away from the word of God, but to the word of God to confirm all of the things that he's telling me. That's why we devote time to the study of God's word. Not every church would do what we do. Not every church would do it for as long as we do it. Not every church member would sit as long as you sit. But we believe something about the word of God. That's why your small groups are going to get together this week. And you're going to go through questions and seek to apply this truth to your lives. Because we believe it's that important. That's why our Awana group focuses on the word of God. That's why our young people gather on Tuesdays to study the word of God. 
It's why we encourage you uh, to read it during the week for yourself. It's why we encourage you to have it open in front of you on Sunday mornings as we study it together so you can see the words. It's why we're committed to verse by verse by verse through the Bible because we don't want man's words to get in there. We want to hear what God said. Not skipping any of it. God saying what only God can say. God doing what only God can do. You can be certain that Jesus Christ is the one and only Savior of the world. But here's the problem. You resist God working as only you can resist. And by you, I mean you and me. We're so good at this. It's in our nature, in fact. We are predisposed to resist God, not to follow him and obey him. So Jesus resumes speaking here in verse 31. Uh, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you. You did not dance. We sang a dirge. You did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. He must have had a gluten intolerance or something. (laughs) Maybe a different reason. Uh, You say, and you say he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The worst. Yet wisdom is justified by all of her children. This is a parable. And then the last one is just this little short uh, proverb that he closes with. And in the parable, you have one set of children. And and the children are representative. uh, The one set of children are are, uh, representative of Jesus and John. They're the ones uh, singing the songs, playing the tunes. The other children um, have no interest in playing with Jesus and John, if you can put it that way. Not, not happy with him. Uh, Jesus is playing a wedding song. It's, it's joyful. It's full of life. Uh, John is playing a funeral dirge. And it really explains the differences. And it's explained here the differences in their two ministries. These other children, no matter what was happening, whether it was a funeral dirge or whether it was a happy wedding song, they just stubbornly refused to play. There will be no dancing. There will be no singing. We will not participate with you. We're not coming out to play. It's a stubborn refusal. And Jesus' whole point is, it doesn't really matter. If I come with this message and this kind of ministry, or if John comes with this message and this kind of ministry, essentially, uh, damned if I do, damned if I don't. That's the summary commentary on this section. It doesn't matter how I come to you, because this is a rejection of the message itself. John and Jesus were preaching the same message. This is a rejection of the form not the form, but the, but the content of the message. And the content of the message is repentance. Again, you don't have it right. You have to agree with God. You have to turn from your way of doing things to God's way of doing things. That's repentance. God's doing it a new way now. And you have to get on God's program. Not keep sticking with yours. 
Now, again, in the same way, I don't want to be too hard on John the Baptist for his question, because I know I can come with similar questions. In the very same way, I don't want to be too hard on the religious leaders, lest I become like them. I mean, I can see my own stubborn resistance to the purposes of God. We can all be like these children, that no matter what God does, we can just stubbornly resist Him. We can refuse to play. And often our doubts are fueled by our own resistance. Our doubts are fueled by our own resistance. Refusing to get aligned with the Lord. We don't want to listen to His Word. We don't want to follow His ways. We don't want to do His will. You see, we resist God. What are some ways that we do this? Really, it comes down to what we've already seen in the text. How do I resist God? What's the thing that I'm doing? If, if I don't want to do it anymore, tell me what I'm doing. Well, we resist God himself when we remove ourselves from the hearing of God's word, whatever that looks like. And when we remove ourselves from the community of God's people. So if I refuse to be with God's people, if I refuse to be in tighter community with God's people, I don't want to get into a small group. I'm not fired up about uncommon community. I'm not excited about authenticity, transparency, and vulnerability. Those things don't excite me. I don't want that. And when we, when we refuse, when we take ourselves out of that community, we essentially are resisting God. When we refuse to open the word of God for ourselves to study it, to press in, to hear it, it's a refusal. It, it, it's, it's a resisting of what the Lord has for us. I, I don't want to hear what God's going to say. Therefore, I'm not going to open the Bible. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Number one way we resist God, we just never open the book. It's a challenge for a lot of people. Or I, I get it. Some people here, you're resisting God. You don't want to follow him. You see what I'm talking about here. And you know the high level of commitment that's required. And you're just going, I'm, I'm not in for that. And yet you feel the tug and pull of the Holy Spirit. I can tell you that in the moment that I began to follow Jesus Christ at the age of 15, I could not resist the work of the Holy Spirit in drawing me into relationship with him. Do not fight God on this. If the Holy Spirit is telling you right now to begin following Jesus, no matter the cost, I'm telling you right now, begin following Jesus. Don't resist him. For some of you, it's baptism. We're going to be baptizing some people here next week. There's an orientation going on down the hall right now. But some of you, you've professed faith in Christ, but for whatever reason, and honestly, I don't care to hear the reasons. I'm too afraid to be in front of people. I don't care. I would dishonor my mother and father if I did, did it because I was baptized. I don't care. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of my kingdom, Jesus said. The Bible says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sin. That's the order. Believer's baptism. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, get baptized. I can't think, honestly, I can't think of a single excuse if you're standing before Jesus on the last day. I can't think of a single excuse that's good enough for not being baptized. Why are you resisting him? 
Maybe you're resisting a call to vocational ministry. Maybe you're a young person in this room and you feel God calling you uh, to become a pastor, to go into ministry, and you're resisting that. Maybe parents, you're resisting it for your children. You think it's not dignified. It's not enough money. It's not the thing your kids ought to be doing. It's not secure enough. Maybe you're resisting what he says What he's saying to you about a sin issue in your life, a relationship that's no good for you, a decision that has to be made that you're refusing to make. Are you rejecting the purposes of God in your life and forfeiting the blessing that comes when you get aligned with God's will? Jesus finishes it up here with a little proverb again, verse 35, wisdom is justified by all her children. In other words, the proof is in the pudding. Wisdom or God's message or God himself is evidenced in your life when you get it, when you obey it, when you do it. And I'm just telling you, you can be certain that Jesus Christ is the one and only Savior of the world. You can be. But you can't resist God's work. You can't resist his word if you want that certainty. Doubt, doubt should fuel faith. Uncertainty should drive us to seek out the work of God, study the word of God, and thus grow our faith in God. We're going to take some time right now. I'm going to invite the team to come up. We're going to take some time right now. And uh, they're going to sing over us for a few minutes and just tuck away your Bibles and your notes and uh, get in a posture of prayer. And I want you to just consider for yourself very personally now, just you and the Lord, any areas in your life where you're resisting him. Anything where you say, I I need to make a change there. I know it. And I don't want to resist God any longer. Any doubts that you have that you want to wrestle with him about, take those to him right now as the team plays over us. You pray, talk to the Lord. Give those things over to him. Confess sin where it needs to be confessed. Ask him for wisdom where you need wisdom. Whatever it is, you take it to the Lord right now. Give us a time of prayer as the team plays. And then we'll sing together and conclude our time this morning.
Father, I pray for those in the room who are just very honestly coming before you right now with doubts about the nature of who you are. And I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit will have worked on them through the hearing of your word this morning. That there would be those in the room who are making the decision right now to become a follower of Jesus Christ, knowing there's a cost to that. To leave everything behind and follow Jesus. Father, for all in the room who are professing faith in Christ already, but maybe struggling in one area or another, an area of obedience, of agreement with you. God, the message of John, the message of your son is consistent. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. I pray that we'd all sense the urgency of that this morning. That we would see the clarity and simplicity of it. And that we would respond with urgency and respond with clarity and respond with simplicity. Simple faith. I believe what God says about this. And I'm going to change some things by the power of His Spirit. So God, help all of those in the room who are making that decision right now. Pour out your spirit in this place, I pray. In Jesus' name. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at harvestberry.ca. And remember, you are loved.